Oh, hello. There you are. Okay. You can't speak. You can't move. But this opens you up to the influence and it breaks down your defenses. Trust me, all right? You will love it. Thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. I'm your host, Kayla St. Ange, and joining me as always is my co-host, Tyler Hannon. I'm also returning. Did you miss us? Because we missed you guys. I don't want to get too into it, but work's been crazy, so sorry for the long break. Uh, We're here, ready to party. I don't know about you guys, but I am sick of this weather. It's too hot. And uh, Tyler and I were thinking about things that we could do for a quote-unquote comeback episode. Um, It wouldn't be on brand Let the Right Films In if it didn't have something to do with horror movies. So if you, like us, are sick of this weather, sick of the sun, just waiting for it to be cool and crunchy-leaved and spooky outside. I'm so sick. Was that, was that a flyleaf so reference? Sick. No, if you're doing a real flyleaf reference, like, I'm so sick. <laughs> you need, like, the screamo in there. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that to our listeners, you know? I want, to, <laughs> I want them to hear the, the, the beauty of when I really, you know, trill. And- mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the episode that we put together for you today is a summer horror movie guide. And, uh, and it's complete. There is nothing missing. Uh, it is has every single summer horror movie. Is that correct, Kayla? Uh, no, disclaimer. Oh. <laughs> we're spotlighting. So oh. we're going to do a couple of different sections. We're going to go through what I've labeled the brief mention section, just to give you a kind of real quick overview of movies you can watch in the summer. And there's also like a real challenge you've issued to us, just coming back immediately. I, I mean... It's going to be tough. Brief mentions. Yeah. For us. I know. I mean, look how long this has gone. I'll have edited some of this out, but it's already like, I don't know, 10 minutes? It's not 10 minutes. No, it's not 10 minutes. Some of that's pre-recording. Anyway, so- It's uh, hyperbole for the listener's enjoyment, Kayla. (laughs) Most of the stuff we're going to go over are movies that we've covered, so you can listen to those episodes. More to come on that. We'll do a couple of movies that we are doing a spotlight on that we want to talk about a little bit more in depth, and then the last half of our episode- you all, I'm assuming, loved Hereditary and loved Ari Aster. If you didn't, I don't know why you listened to this podcast. That's There are many other movies we talk about than just Hereditary. I'm specifically calling out um, all of our non-horror fans. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so we will be focusing on this summer's Midsummer, directed by our boy Ari Aster. But yeah, so uh, yeah. let's get into it. No existential crises on mic. Well, yeah, I'm going to cut new, that. New Year, new podcast. New Year, new podcast. New Year, new podcast on July 25th. Yep. <laughs> in our in season two. Is it season two? I think it's probably more like season three. Actually, you know what? Before we uh, before we hop into the brief mentions, I do want to point out this is our four year anniversary of being a podcast. 
Uh, we have had a spotty history throughout the entire history of our podcast. We have an eccentric publishing schedule. I So when we first started doing this podcast, you may remember that we were a podcast about the IMDb 250. We are no longer a podcast on the IMDb 250. We're now a podcast on whatever we feel like. We've had co-hosts and guests come and go, and we love every single person that's ever been on here. I love every person who's ever listened to this podcast and who's ever supported us. And um, yeah, so... No mention of love for your co-host there. I just I just said co-host and guests. Well, I'm... St- okay. okay <laughs> but I'm a co-host right. who has not gone. I specifically love Tyler, who is my best friend and who I love talking about movies with. It's been... It <laughs> it's been a real bummer to not be able to do this for so long. And... Yeah, um, we haven't seen each other since our last episode. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, we work together. That's really the problem. But um, yeah, so thank you so much if you've been on this ride with us. Um, I think in the course of this podcast, I have switched jobs, ended an yep. engagement, gotten a new long-term boyfriend who I'm probably going to marry. I didn't do that either. Knock on wood. Um, I got a new and better job. I got promoted. Tyler had I'm here. life of it. You got promoted. You got a good job. <laughs> I've got, got a different job. I got promoted. I left that job. I came back. I have a bunch of plants on my apartment. The Tyler apartment's has lots new. lots of plants. Um, um, Soundcat Phoebe is not with us in this particular apartment, but mm. she is still doing great, living her best life, being awesome. Um, and yeah, so... And this podcast is going to be monthly going forward. Uh we did not specify that earlier, but I think that's an important point. Intentionally monthly, not we're going to try to do one every week. And then you know, the, we're going to re- record at the end of the month, edit and release it fairly promptly. Note to myself, release, edit and release promptly. Okay, <laughs> do not shelf every episode. Point. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so we're going to usually have, well, maybe not usually. Our default is going to be our previous format. We will be have a movie we focus on and then, you know, a recently watched section before it. But yes, yeah, so we'll be a monthly podcast. Sometimes we'll have big theme episodes, especially, you know, with the uh, month of Halloween coming up. Mm-hmm. And then the month before that, which is pre-Halloween. And then the month <laughs> after, which is post-Halloween. Yes, exactly. Uh, so we'll have some theme episodes. We'll have some other episodes where we just really want to talk about this movie and some stuff we recently watched. And sometimes we'll have guests. Sometimes we won't. Which is, that actually is kind of the same as before. That's always the same. Yeah. yeah. So, like, in that way, there will be more consistency going forward. Yeah. The idea is to make it a fun hobby again and not a chore. Um, when we first started doing this podcast, we did it weekly and we were recording in a coffee shop, which mm-hmm. is nuts and stuff like that. And when we were talking about rebooting, I guess, we talked about how. It was crazy that we had that kind of work ethic for it and that we enjoyed doing it so much that we were willing to do it at seven in the morning before we both went to two jobs. And now that we, the, was it the work ethic or just like the only bright spot in our lives? <laughs> I think that was a little bit more of it. And not that I'm saying that I own that this is my only bright spot, but it's to the point where we're both ready to come back to it. We're both ready to have like this really nice creative outlet and passion. And we hope that you guys are excited about it too. Yeah. Kayla quit Twitter, so she needs to find someone to yell at. In Somebody real life. has to listen to me, okay? I'm losing my mind. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm actually much healthier. I highly recommend taking a Twitter break if you can. But yeah, so uh, Tyler, if you have nothing else to talk about the anniversary of our podcast, let's get into it. 
our podcast. The podcast. The podcast. Let the right films in. Yes. These Brief are the films section. we're letting in. It's true. <laughs> That's an old, other, old concept. No other, like, which we never really even <laughs> no. used. We it's used just it, a good title. We used it once in the first podcast. So I'm sorry, I will digress to this tiny bit of trivia is that when we first brainstormed the podcast, the idea was at the end of every podcast, we would decide if we were going to let the film in or not. And I think the only time it ever got brought up is in our very first episode where we both mentioned, and yes, we will be letting this film in and then it was never brought up again i just don't think like it's also just like not how we really look at movies i don't nope. think is and also like the a podcast called the canon used to exist so mm-hmm. all okay. right so <laughs> that was uh your let the right films and trivia of the week <laughs> it's all business from here on out moving into your summer horror guide brief mentions edition The first movie that I want to talk about is actually the most mentioned movie throughout our entire podcast history. Checks out. But we have never done an episode on it. So your first summer horror movie is called It Follows. While we've never actually done a proper episode on this, uh, I, Kayla, did do a guest spot on the Nerdy Chicano Show, which is a part of the Nerdcore Podcast Network. Uh, That is Nerdy Chicano Episode 17, and you can check that out on all of your podcatching apps. And we'll have all this stuff in in the notes for the show as well. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry, because it is my fault, because it was my project. Uh, The next movie on our Brief Mentions summer horror list uh, is a favorite of Kayla's. Mm -hmm. Not that I dislike it, but I first learned to appreciate it because of you. It's the Blair Witch Project. Project. Suspense, because you didn't know if I was talking about the Adam Wingard one or the original one, or maybe Book of Shadows. I kind of like the Adam Wingard one. I'm so not going to lie. So uh, I have not seen good. Book of Shadows, and I have no intention of doing uh, so. But the Adam Wingard one's good. It's good. I don't know what to tell you. But that's not on this list. Uh, it's the Blair Witch Project. Uh, you know, the found footage OG. Obviously, a landmark horror film, both in the genre. And it's very and outdoorsy, which makes it summery. Yeah. And you can listen to our, uh, it was actually our very first right. bonus episode. A uh, friend Ooh. of podcast, Gay Bacons, and I talked about that on October 26th, 2015, when we were just young podcasting babies. What is the next movie on our list? This is a pretty quintessential summer horror movie. Um, although I will throw out a quick disclaimer, the episode from Faculty of Horror about this movie is better than actually watching the movie. <laughs> uh, it's called Sleepaway Camp. Dear Mom and Dad, I've been at a sleepaway camp for almost three weeks, and I'm getting very scared. This is one that we have briefly discussed on our podcast. Former co-host Lauren Melisi mentioned it on our Final Girls episode, which was episode 24 on May 29th, 2017. And yeah, so you can listen to us talk about it. You can listen to the Faculty of Horror people talk about it much better and eloquent, more eloquently. And yeah, 
Tyler. It's, it's generally a movie I like having or listening to discussions about that I it's, do actually uh, watch. Yeah, I watched it actually pretty recently, and it's not great, but it is campy, schlocky, kind of fun. Uh-huh. If you choose to believe that it's empowering rather than terrible. <laughs> Death of the Author. Our next movie, uh, you might have heard of it. It might have a little bitty sequel coming out soon. It is It. What happens when another Georgie goes missing? Or one of us. Are you just going to pretend it isn't happening like everyone else in this town? If we stick together, we'll win. With no follows, just it. Full stop. We covered it in episode 38 on October 12th, 2017. We're very excited for the new one. We liked this, not really remake, like re-adaptation of Stephen King's, you know, brick of a novel, one of his several. And we're really looking forward to the new one, especially with that cast. I'm actually so sad because I'm going to be out of the country when it premieres. So poor Tyler has to wait for me to fly back from England so that we can watch it together. Five whole days. It's going to be terrible. It, you're gonna owe me like buckets of money. This is literally my plan: is that I get back on September 13th. I had to schedule a hair trim appointment for September 14th, and if I'm not jet lagged to death the next day, we can just go see it on the 14th. But I'm not sure what my brain is gonna be doing at that time, so we'll see. I mean, it would be fine anyways. Uh, I can wait a few days to watch a movie. But also, it feels like the least I can do, given that you have once again planned the entirety of our Salem trip. Brief preview. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) And also wrote out this whole outline and, uh, you know. Kayla, what is the next movie? So the next movie on our brief mentions list is actually one that we've double covered, kind of. Uh, That movie is House of the Devil. One of our collective favorite horror movies. Uh, super great tribute to the 1980s. I guess maybe tribute to Satanic Panic is not the way I want to phrase that. Yeah, but, it is. Uh, discusses the Satanic Panic of the 80s and stars the absolutely lovely Jocelyn Donahue. Has a great Greta Gerwig cameo. And yeah, uh, we well okay. One we might did even not say an explosive one. Yeah. <laughs> we did not talk about this proper, but Sean and Tyler did an episode on this. It's episode 39, which was released October 21st, 2017. Um it was a double feature episode with The Changeling, which is another great movie, which I guess could be kind of a summer movie if you want to toss that in there so that you're getting the full let the right films in episode experience. Mm-hmm. Um and then we also discussed it on our Salem Horror Recap, which was episode 52, released October 15th. 2018 and that was just we did a quick recap of all of the movies that we saw last year at salem horror which actually brings us to the next movie on the list which is one that we only talked about because we saw it at salem horror and that's the uh classic rosemary's baby uh directed by a criminal
Or should I not leave with that? But yes, yes, we should uh, leave with that. Caveat in there that Roman Polatsky is, uh, you know, a criminal, mm-hmm. uh, probably a monster. Um, we have a pretty strict no Woody Allen, no Roman Polanski discussion on this podcast rule. So while I really like this movie, it has a complicated legacy due to the shitty, shitty, awful, disgusting man who directed it. And we talk about that a little bit on that recap episode because, again, it is a good movie to watch. But if you are sensitive to those things, I would recommend skipping it because it's kind of crazy that that guy directed that movie. Yeah. And, I mean, we go into the backstory a a bit on there. But uh, it's the stuff that works about it and seems to contrast with the man himself seems like it is maybe from the original novel. Ah, uh, yes. And so, uh, is not intentional on Polanski's part. That is true. If you are interested in this story and you don't want to give any attention to him, you can read the original novel by Ira Levin, which is pretty much unaltered in the screenplay because Doofus Boy didn't realize that you could change things when adapting a novel to a movie. So... What a blessed time that must have been in film history. <laughs> and that's like the one time we'll cover a Roman Polanski movie on this podcast. And we will move on immediately. Uh, the last movie in our brief mentions is one that we have never covered on the podcast, but that you kind of can't get through a summer horror guide without mentioning. I like it fine. It's not one of my favorites. I don't know. Uh, it's a Cabin jo- Fever. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is Jaws. which I'm sure there was at least one nerd out there with bated breath waiting to see if we were going to talk about it. Um, Jaws is a movie. I don't have like a lot to talk about. It's on a great it. movie even. It's fun. Yeah. It might have changed cinema forever. It's just, for me, it's a little dudely. It's a little dudely. Why do you say that? Because it's, it's of, lots of dudes on a boat. Yeah. Being dudes. Hang, being dudes, you know. What's better than this? Yeah, bros being bros fighting a shark. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that is your brief mentions guide. So those are the ones we've, for the most part, talked about. And we will have a letterbox. I'm going to create a letter, one of us. And there will be a letterbox list that is, again, not actually exhaustive, but we'll have a lot more movies on it. Yeah, we cut some for uh, brevity's sake, because as you know, brevity is the thing that we care most about Mm -hmm. on Let the Right Films In. Yeah. No bits. Which is something I literally just stole from Blank Check, which is also something we would never do on this podcast. I'm gonna cut all of that. So I'm just gonna <laughs> cut it entirely. So moving on to our spotlight feature, these are some movies that we thought maybe merited a little bit more discussion than just saying, "Hey, you should watch this." Uh, the first one that we want to talk about is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Tyler, this is one of those movies that I feel like you saw way before I did because you were into horror before I was. And, and I'm an old, old man. You're old and you're also better sometimes at watching old horror movies than I am. At sometimes. So, Let's not give me too much credit. What's uh, What is it about this movie that you love? What brings you back to this as like your summer horror pick? 
I guess I never used to really think of this as a summer horror movie, uh, but it is, you know, I mean, but it, I mean, it's a seminal classic. It's the practical effects still work for the most part. It's still scary. And like it, when it comes to dream logic, it is still one of the standards that set off one of the greatest or well, no, it's one of the longest running <laughs> franchises of all time. Actually, I like it a lot more than like the Friday the 13th series or like even. The I think Halloween if we're series. picking an 80s slasher series, it's probably the best out of all of them. Minus, I don't know. I guess Hollow, it's hard because they vary so much in quality, yes, to do. be honest. Like, they, you could say they blur together a bit, especially Friday. Ooh. Well, that's because Friday is a blatant cash grab. Oh, Wah. come on. Bobby, <laughs> no. As if none of the Nightmare series was a blatant crash. I mean, crash yes, but it didn't start off as legit, hey, the kids like these movies, let's make one, I guess. But it did inspire it. True. More of them. But no, it's just great. Love, Nancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nancy. Heather Langenkamp. I have even more affection for it now, speaking seriously, for uh, kind of some of the uh sequels especially you know when they bring when nancy comes back in three i really like some of the sequels and how they tie back to the original but yeah the original is just just a really good movie with some enduring imagery and Mm -hmm. scenes uh changed like when i saw it at the time actually with the next with the next movie that comes up on this podcast like in my late teens early 20s uh late start on horror and movies but one of the movies that just kind of changed the way i thought about both movies and horror and the things that you could do and the things it could cover yeah for for me uh i didn't see this movie until i think a couple years ago i think it was when we were still in our I was going to say this town, but I probably shouldn't. The other apartment we lived in together first. Okay. <laughs> Which other? <laughs> oh, yeah. No. Um, uh, and I remember, I think we watched it in the summer, and that's why I think of it as a summer movie for me. It just definitely feels like when it's like kind of sticky and hot and mm-hmm. gross out, and I don't know, some creepo is stalking through your dreams. Um, but I don't know. I just have really fond memories of this. Like, I, we used to do this thing um, every year when we worked at the video store where – when it was the first day that kind of felt like fall, we'd rent a bunch of movies and what did we, I think it was autumn inauguration or something like that. And we would get super drunk and watch some (laughs) horror movies and eat some peanut butter cups that were shaped like pumpkins. So this movie was a part of that. And I agree that there is some really cool lasting imagery here. And I think that Heather Langenkamp and of course, Robert England give really great performances. And even if every entry of the franchise doesn't hit, I think it did ultimately alter the horror landscape and make make history i don't know (laughs) but i'd say like it has maybe our favorite kind of summer vibes which are like the end of summer or phasing into autumn Mm -hmm. summer vibes dreamy hazy time yeah Mm -hmm. i don't know that's really what it is like that late august early september uh when it becomes september 1st i immediately thrive like a butterfly because it is kind of fall um, global warming is really putting a dent in that thriving, and I needed it to stop. I don't know, you know, probably I mean, it's a phase. It'll revert back to. I hope so. Fine. Do you know what movie <laughs> goes really well with global warming? Uh, the one Al Gore directed. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because it's really hot and gross the entire time.
Yeah, this is a bit. It's flawless. a very. It was a flawless transition, absolutely, <laughs> and I, especially because I did not give you anything on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, kind of the obvious of our feature present, or the the opposite of our feature presentation today. Uh, <laughs> of our in spotlight. that it is like, what if summer, it, like, what about, what if we uh, spend some time in the part of summer that's just the worst? It's sweltering and gross and dirty, and you just want to die. You're covered and in blood. A guy is chasing you. Yeah. This movie is gross. Oh, so gross. I'm not going to lie. So- like, in, but like, Incredible, like delightfully gross. Gross. <sighs> we, uh, I saw this for the first time uh, two years ago, I think, at this point. Yes. Uh, we were lucky enough that the art theater by our office did a special screening of it to commemorate the life of Toby Hooper. And it was at 10 o'clock at night, which was past my bedtime immensely. <laughs> and we were like one of five people in the theater i think or some of five people in the theater we sat closer up than other folks so i think but like it definitely was nothing compared to suspiria yeah too bad very very low-key and i had never seen it before and i it's definitely one of those movies that has a legacy that is a little overbearing when you actually watch it for the first time because for me i was like this guy's gonna chase them with a chainsaw the whole time it's gonna be super bloody there's gonna be teens getting picked off every second and none of that is quite true there's not really any chainsaws except for i don't know the enduring image at the very end yeah i think there's maybe combined three minutes of chainsaw screen time um, the scariest part of the movie is actually when Marilyn Burns character is strapped down to that dinner table. And it's just, again, the, it's so sticky and gross looking and terrifying in a way that it's not jump scare scary. It's more the dread of knowing you're going to die. <laughs> and for me, it's, it's one of those horror movies that makes me always think, um, like, I don't know. Maybe I just don't know because I've never been in a serial killer is stalking me kind of situation. But like the way that these people try so hard to survive, I'm like, I don't know if I have that much effort in me. You're trying really hard and he has a chainsaw and he caught you like eight times already. (laughs) You never know until you're in that situation, Kayla. I hope that I'm not. And so if you donate to our Patreon link, the first goal is we will put ourselves in a serial killer situation. If you donate to our Patreon link and we get enough money, I will go to one of the haunted houses where they touch you, even though that is literally my worst fear. That's a big commitment. Yeah, if we get uh, $100 on Patreon, I'll do that. Okay, that's official. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm going to make note of this. Can't come from Tyler, my boyfriend, or anyone that (laughs) would just be a smartass and donate $100. Kayla commits to Haunted House. No, like, no donations from members of this podcast or significant others thereof Mm -hmm. count. But everybody else, go in. I mean, we have two months uh, to make it happen, so... I already know a place that we can go, unfortunately, so there's one that's pretty close to here where um, I will digress on this brief tangent. Last year, Ben's dad's company hosted a summer picnic at an apple orchard near us, and their whole thing is that they do haunted hayrides and they have haunted houses, and we did not realize that we were not supposed to go in there because it very much felt like the company was given free reign of the area, so we went into one of the not 
functioning haunted houses and it was so creepy and maybe it was just creepy because like nothing was supposed to be happening but um they were they were doing some repairs and they were testing some stuff and we came around the corner and there's this it was like insane asylum themed or something and there's this big giant monster animatronic guy and i was with ben's dad because ben had disappeared and i had already shouted if you jump out and scare me i will dump you and i will leave you here and we were looking at this giant animatronic and i said to ben's dad man that's probably really scary when it's like in season and functioning and you don't know what's going to happen and as we rounded the corner because they were testing it it lit up and popped up and I lost my mind and screamed and that's when the employee found us and told us that we were not supposed to be in there and we left so yeah um we can do that I guess but really in season so you heard it here first Kayla commits to if uh, we reach a hundred dollars on Patreon. She will spend a night in that place. You know, I didn't say spend a Solo, night. I said we'd go by through herself. it. She will spend a night in an insane asylum. Um, if you play the record back, you will see that is not what I said. Oh, I mean, the only <laughs> record they're gonna have is the one that I edited. So no, <laughs> I gave him producer rights. But yeah, so um, Texas Chainsaw is one of those movies. It's an enduring classic. It has a legacy that gets a little bit ahead of it. So I would definitely, if you've never seen it, check it out. But don't expect it to be some crazy hack and slash thing. It's in the Love to Suffer Hall of Fame. Yeah, I would definitely. I would, honestly, I would put it up there with some crazy shit like, I don't know, Solo or something like that, where it's just like gross Except and sad. Except it's also funny. That's true. That's the thing that I think people and the, forget the about horror movies. The sequel is good, and he has even more humor in it. I've never seen that. That's I will good. take your word for it. But yeah, so as we kind of wind down on this spotlight section, there was only one movie that we thought we could talk about before we headed into our midsummer section. Finally, Cabin Fever. <laughs> Why is Cabin Fever the bit? I don't know because I hate it. <laughs> I've and I hate the remake, it. and it's also a, like it would be a summer horror movie. I get, if you want to watch Cabin Fever, no, don't do it. And tell us about it. I take it back. I'll you edit can, this out. You can do that. No, nope, no. Nope. <laughs> Keep it in and double it. No, stop stealing <laughs> blank check. I'm bits. not stealing it. I'm making a reference to a podcast that I love and respect. Well, that was actually very nice. Yes. Anyway, the movie that we're going to talk about is 1973's version of The Wicker Man. adaptation of the Nicolas Cage version like, original. In 1973, yes, they adapted the 2006 Nicolas Cage movie The Wicker Man. That's what they did. So The Wicker Man uh going into Midsummer uh like well, leading up to Midsummer's release was kind of like the easiest reference or comparison point that people could make cuz it's cult summer weird pagan stuff. Burning. Uh, like was like the easy comparison point. And I 
I want to transition to your thoughts because you just watched it for the first time. I did not think I was going to be that interested in comparing the two because they're very different. And then after rewatching it, I find I'm actually very interested in comparing and contrasting the two, specifically because of how, like, the ways that they are exactly similar and then the many ways that they are completely different. Mm-hmm. But uh, before we get to that, you just watched it for the first time less than 24 hours ago. That's true. Your thoughts. Reporting live. <laughs> On the scene. Um, first of all, I can't believe this movie has been around for this long and is so acclaimed in this community. And I never once in my entire life heard that it's also a half-assed folk musical. Because let me tell you, I was very surprised and confused by this aspect of the movie, which in the sense of it being like a pagan cult makes sense. But it was not what I was expecting after all of these years of this is the canonical summer horror yada yada thing. And I don't know. Um, there's a lot of singing. There is a lot of nudity. There is not a lot of traditional horror elements. There's not a lot of Christopher Lee, which also nope. surprised me. Just again, this is one of those movies that similarly has a legacy that precedes it in a way that kind of misleads you. I mean, he's the Lord of Summer Isle. He's busy. He's got stuff to do. That's true. He's also hot AF in this movie yes. as like a 70s guy. Yep. Love him. But yeah, um, I there were parts of it that I really, really liked. I think that the central conflict between Lord Summer Isle and Sergeant Howie is really interesting. I think that when you have two men of faith who are so staunchly set in their ways and who refuse to even a little bit think outside the box, I think that nobody really wins. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I I think that there are some good things and I think that there are also some wild swings that do not land like the folk music and oh, disagree, obviously. The overwhelming nudity, Kayla, <laughs> and, free love, dude. Uh, yeah, and I know, but it's and it's one like, of those things where it's like, Kayla, free yourself from the shackles of society and the <laughs> expectations it has taught you to place upon yourself. I took a tiny note where I was like, so if this guy had just chilled out for two seconds, he would not have been sacrificed? Question mark. But if he chilled out for two seconds, he would not have been the type of man that they would have brought to the island. That's true. Mm. There, and that's the thing is, I feel like it's one of those movies that has a lot of oh, interesting- We're still going to spoil relentlessly. Oh, yeah, obviously. Obviously. But yeah, um, I think that this is a movie that has a lot of interesting subtext, and I'm not sure how much of that subtext was intentional. I haven't read the book, so it's hard to say. Another thing that struck me was that, to me anyway, um, obviously this was the much ballyhooed. Uh, Midsummer is just ripping off Wicker Man. It's I mean, ridiculous. Was it much ballyhooed? Kind of, yeah. Was this before you got off Twitter? This is before I got off Twitter. Oh, obviously. Um, Twitter was rotting my brain, making me really angry all the time. Anyway, um, so when I finally sat down to watch this, I was surprised by how different they are. It's almost like we nobody had seen Midsummer yet. <laughs> or had seen Wicker Man in a long time, because I don't think that they're very similar. I think that no. they're very different groups, first of all, very different cults. I it's don't even like, think that you could say the Midsummer or the the I'm sorry, that you could say that the Wicker Man people are in a cult. They're just pagans. And they like use like the same general base concept to explore completely different subjects yeah so but then like also because it takes place during the day in a culty area like the in that sense the comparisons to midsummer are obvious 
Um, but I just rewatching, I find it fascinating. Just again, how they explore completely different subjects. Like Wick, Wicker, the Wicker Man, I would say is most focused on like religion, like religion and sexuality, and I mean certain other elements of society that the rigid sharing. roles that faith places upon men. <laughs> right, it deals a lot with religion, whereas we'll get into it a bit, I'm sure. But like Midsummer, it does not feel religious. It feels much more like cultural i suppose yeah um and like the lore that they follow uh and in like that is is a much more has a much more of a personal focus about you know personal relationships and dependency and stuff and it's much more individual i, th- I feel like midsummer is much more exploring individual things whereas the wicker man was much more about societal things the wicker man is also so vignette which i was yeah. not expecting either and I would say that they both kind of have the... I don't know if it's intentional. (laughs) That's the thing. I think that Midsummer very much places you with this group of people and wants you to live with them. Mm. Whereas I feel like the Wicker Man is very much this fish is thrown out of water immediately. And then a bunch of weird, random things happen. Which also to me kind of like watching the original kind of shed a little bit more light for me on why the Nicolas Cage movie is so bizarre and weird. How could it not be? Because yeah, and that's the thing is everyone's like, oh, this is a classic. And this is obviously a piece of trash. But I'm looking at them and I'm like, fundamentally, they're not that different. It's just that Nicolas Cage has no reservation. Yeah, he has no like qualms about just leaning into being nuts. Whereas we had bees around our head, I think we would also react the same way. Well, the point of the original is very much that it's a super straight laced man confronted with the idea of possibly expanding his worldview, coming out of his very rigid style of life and accepting that people can live in a different way and be happy that way. And ultimately his rigidity is kind of his downfall, but on the same the other side of that coin, you have the people of Summer Isle who are so invested in their crops, which cannot even grow on that island, as we find out nor- towards the very oh, end of the no movie. He's no scientist. I mean, he says that. Has a, the, have we checked his sources? I mean, I think Did he, he knows. Cite them? I think he probably knows what he's talking about. But they're so set in their ways that they're willing to sacrifice an innocent person to get what they want. And I think for me, that's the part of the movie that works best is that last 20 minute stretch. Mm-hmm. Because up until then, it's meandering, just, weird, yeah, weird, and- singing, nude. I don't know. When, it, when you get into like, like we are no like I love ambiguity, but that movie that is a movie where you kind of need answers, otherwise it all feels kind of pointless and like it doesn't hang together. Well, and I think it's interesting to note too that there are so many different work prints of this available, and like the original negatives were destroyed in a studio fire, and there are conflicting accounts of what was supposed to be in, and people have memories of shooting scenes that nobody can ever found evidence of, like that kind of thing. I feel like it was a pretty rushed production, and that the editing job was maybe not originally satisfactory and it's one of those movies that's just been recut and re-released and yada yada many many times but i think that when you're looking at the bones of it it's good and those last 20 minutes where you see that these two opposing forces are colliding and they're never going to bend to each other and therefore honestly they're probably both going to lose it's really unlikely that his crops are going to come back because they sacrificed this police officer and this man is still going to die regardless of how devout he is in his christian faith and 
I think that for the first time, he's kind of forced to confront the 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 fact that his faith is no less ridiculous than theirs because when he's put into the wicker man he is staring at them and they are singing their quote-unquote hymn they are all laughing and smiling they're all a thousand percent convinced that this is the correct course of action and that their gods will reward them for doing it and i think to see that kind of stalwartness in the face of your impending death would shake any man's confidence any person's confidence and that to me was the most chilling part of the movie and i think that the intellectual horror movie that they set out to make succeeds specifically at the end and pretty much only at the end it also does relate to summer a little bit midsummer and a little bit in that like oh yes the cult is make or uh the, the commune or whatever the community you know whatever derivation of that word you want to use mm-hmm. uh they make some good points but then the viewer is reminded at the end oh extreme fanaticism uh in service of anything is probably bad murder cults are usually probably bad i'm gonna make that the official let the right films in stance on I murder mean, to cults. be fair to be wicker fair. man the wicker man cult they only killed one guy to start you know we don't know how many people they've killed no this is the this is like the first time i think and okay. then i'm pretty sure I don't know. I, whatever. Well, the Midsummer Cult only kills somebody every 90 years, so. Somebody's. Okay, true. Nine people every 90 years. It's a little bit of a higher ratio, I guess. But, you know, what can you do about More it? More than a decade. But, yeah, I don't know. I, for me, The Wicker Man, it, it's an interesting genre exercise. And I think that we need those kind of weird, fringy movies to remind people that horror is not necessarily one specific thing. And... It's one of those movies where even if everything doesn't work for me, I can appreciate the history behind it and the legacy that it's built. Um, Nicolas Cage adaptation notwithstanding. Such nuance, Kayla. See, this is what the podcasting world has been missing with you not in it. I do what I can. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah. Also a very nice haircut. We didn't mention that. Oh, yeah. I have a really cool gay bowl cut right now. I will still have it at the time of release because this will be released soon. <laughs> did this not... will be released on our anniversary on July 27th, All right, 2019. So mark that down at X time. Tyler committed to releasing the podcast on July 27th, no matter what. A little note here. <laughs> but yeah, so um, do you have any other thoughts on Wicker Man? I know you said that there were some things you were... I, I mean, that kind of covers it really. It's just how... The same basic premise and maybe some, because of that premise, some similarities and like pro- plot der- derivations, uh, while interesting and makes for the easy comparison, uh, belies the fact that they are in pursuit of completely, just completely different intellectual exercises or ideas. Yeah. The thesis and I think that's work. nifty. <laughs> All right. Well, that concludes our spotlight section and transitions us very nicely into the midsummer it's like a crazy nine-day festival it only happens every 90 years hi hello there You can't speak. You can't move. But 
this opens you up to the influence, then it breaks down your defenses. Trust me. Midsummer is the 2019 sophomore film of smash breakout writer-director Ari Aster, who directed last year's Hereditary, which we loved here Mm -hmm. at LTRFI headquarters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Big fans of that guy. It stars Florence Pugh. Pugh. Florence Pugh. Pugh, pew, pew, pew. Jack Rayner, some Swedish guy, some other Swedish people, and (laughs) Cheaty. William Jackson Harper, come Cheaty. on. <laughs> oh, and the guy from Bandersnatch. With Will Poulter. I see no issue with how I've introduced any of these people. <laughs> so um, this movie is a super interesting examination of grief. After Florence Pugh's character, Danny, suffers a terrible loss, she joins her shitty boyfriend, Christian, on a trip to Sweden to Christian visit- with to visit their friend Pele's family for a week-long midsummer festivity, which Pele describes as costumes and pageantry and special ceremonies. This, that is all true. This is the point where if you don't want any spoilers, you got to go. You got to get out. We're going to spoil it. Um, I will say this movie is not like Hereditary in that I don't think you need to go into this completely blind. I think that Hereditary really, really benefited from having that smash cut shock surprise in it. But I think that Midsummer excels in a different way in that you're going to know what's coming probably the entire movie. And it's going to be intentional and still be interesting. So if you want to keep listening or if you're not sure if you want to see it, go ahead. If you don't want spoilers, get the fuck out of here. But it is a lot like Hereditary in that the first 15 minutes will ruin your life. Yes. So, um, I don't know. Let's get into it. So, the the movie starts with just – I got to say this right off the bat. Florence Pugh is incredible in this movie. Oh, my God. I First of all, I feel very seen by her body type and by her alto voice and by her cute round face and her sad face, which is legendary – um, and also yeah, when she smiles, the heavens just open up. Yeah, she brings. I'm going to be honest with you. The the character work in this is a little bit thin, and I'm sure that that's intentional because I think that Ari got really lost in creating this cult in this world and whatnot. But I think that Florence does a really good job of taking a script that is fine. It's not a bad script by any means. I read the screenplay, but there's not a whole lot there for her to go on, and she imbues this character with such a vulnerability and. You just – you want to hug her. You want to protect her. You want to stop these things from happening to her, you know? Um, Will and, someone just, like, hold her and be present with her? Yes. No, and, not you, murder cult. Someone normal. <laughs> and so this movie begins uh, with the murder-suicide of her entire family. Her sister kills her parents and then herself by filling their home with car exhaust fumes. And – so we meet Danny on the eve of this uh, event, and we see her, you know, responding to a scary email from her sister, talking on the phone with her boyfriend, who is clearly absent and clearly does not give a fuck. And um, right off the bat, we get this really 
close shot of her where she's on the phone trying not to cry and her boyfriend is gaslighting the shit out of her telling her that she is letting this happen she's letting her sister manipulate her yada yada and it's just the groundwork for these characters again i just said it was thin but also they set it up so quickly and so easily and as a person who's been with guys like this it's painfully real it's like it, well, I guess I obviously do not have the same experience, although, let's be real, there are elements of me in each of these guys. I, I, I Again, I think I said to you both times, one of the main things for me coming out of it is like, man, he sure has a handle on the many different ways dudes can be absolutely terrible. Yeah, and my thought on this is either I can't tell if he's telling on himself or if he just has a real handle on how to confront toxic masculinity. I can so I did listen to a couple interviews that he did. Uh, this one comes from the Film Comment podcast interview with him. I took note of this especially because I was kind of curious uh, because he clearly puts a lot of his personal life or like feelings and emotions into his work. I was wondering where he comes in, and he said that he wrote Danny with a lot of him. He put a lot of himself into Danny, but he also like sees elements of himself in Christian. Mm-hmm. So like, but it is like the way he said it does sound like more so Danny. And this is, of course, not to say that necessarily it's always the man doing X and X shitty thing in relationships or whatnot. And there's nothing wrong with um, a man relating to Danny or whatever. I just think it's really interesting that we have two movies now where he's given us these really interesting and complex women who are trying so hard to kind of bury their own emotions for the benefit of others. And – In Danny in particular, um, again, she's going through this incredibly traumatic life event. She's on a plane to another country to go to a place she's never been before with a group of people that are openly hostile to her for the most part. And she's trying to process these emotions, but every time she tries to do that, she's made to feel like a burden. She's made to feel like she's too over the top or like she's somehow to blame for this happening. And it struck me because in so many art forms, whether it's movies or books or whatever, it's very rare to see a woman who is in hysterics being portrayed as true and right and being told that, like, that is the correct response to have. Women in hysterics are often dismissed or played down or played for laughs and – To see this setup where you see her choking back her sobs and her, I don't know, her grief, really, to try and make herself more convenient to her boyfriend or to her group and being like definitively shown through the writing and through the movie that that sucks and that that's not what should be happening is incredible. And it's honestly kind of embarrassing that like a film bro dude is the one who's putting that in movies and nobody else is. Yeah, and one thing I really appreciate appreciate about him, and I think I've or hit like you know the two movies of his that I've seen so far, uh, and I usually say this in how he in his how he foreshadows things, but also just like in these characters too, I feel like he finds the right balance of not necessarily show not tell, but like laying the groundwork there, but never overdoing it, making it very clear what is happening, what is being set up, like if you're paying attention. But not like it's it's not too obvious and obtuse, but it's also not too 
low key that you'd miss it necessarily. I just I I think he like with much of it, but with that specifically, uh, I think there's just a really good balance, especially in like the way people move, the way their faces do anything, the specific physical actions they take. Um, I think like a small example is when Danny is talking to Pele the when they go to the the guy's apartment mm-hmm. or whatever they're hanging out and uh josh william jackson harper's character is just kind of like reading a book purposely not really looking up not wanting to engage because he's very uncomfortable and then like in the background of one shot walking to the microwave to like heat up his cup of coffee or whatever i just i don't know they're like they're just like very specific things like that throughout that show even without drawing attention to it even when it's in the background exactly like what that character it tells a lot about that character both in that moment and just kind of how they relate to the world yeah so even when you he has to cut out like an hour of the relationship personal stuff to get a two and a half hour movie there's still a lot of that there yeah and i think that this is something just to to i guess derail for a minute to talk about Ari Aster, the person, rather than specifically this movie. I think that he's really worked since his short film days to kind of hone that and to make a real thesis for his body of work. Because I think that a lot of his early short films, and I I watched almost all of them the other day before making myself really upset <laughs> by doing that thing. I think that he used to be somebody who was really going for shock value. And I think that there are a lot of legitimate criticisms of him as somebody who is maybe an irresponsible portrayer of these things, of grief or of trauma or of sexual assault or whatever. And I think, I don't know, of course, because I don't know him and I don't know his life, but I feel like either he made a conscious decision to become a serious artist and to decide to take these things seriously and not just put them in because they're shocking or something happened to him to make him re-examine the way that he is confronting these issues. Because when you take his short film, The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which is, I'm I'm not going to, it's despicable. Like, honestly, don't waste your time watching it. It's 30 minutes long and it's gross. And it made me feel really bad. And I didn't like it at all. And I was really worried that this it was going to, like, cheapen how much I loved Hereditary and how much I had really liked Midsummer on first watch. But when I... After this had happened the next week, I rewatched Hereditary and then we went to the theater again to see Midsummer again. And it, the difference between the way that the characters react and how they handle things is so stark that it is a clear writing choice one way or the other. And I think that he's grown as a person and as an artist and that it's exciting to see where he'll go from here as he moves into other genres. Um, but I just think that he's really focused on making sure that we understand that Grief is horrible. People can be shitty to each other in really subtle ways because I think that that's really present in Hereditary and Midsummer, where you have um, Tony Collette's husband throughout is wishy-washy and shitty. He ignores his wife. He just kind of lets her do things. And then when she gets like a little too crazy for him, he steps in to say, oh, you know, I have to protect my son and I have to do this, yada, yada. All of a sudden he cares and wants to be involved because it's gone a little bit too far for him. And similarly, I think in Midsummer, I don't think that Christian as a boyfriend appreciates Danny or the amount of compartmentalizing and the amount of shrinking that she's done to be with him until he realizes that she can and will discard him in the end. (laughs) And I think that those are really great things to focus on. And I think that it's a really interesting character study to bring and a really great development because holy shit, are those short films not good? (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) So 
I'm really glad that that's happening, but like I know that that's a really common criticism that I've seen, and I know that there are people who are kind of wary of him as a director, and I think that, to me at least, it seems like he's putting the work in to evolve as an artist and to make sure that he is responsibly portraying these things. And I hope that that's true and not that I have been completely conned by some dude, because it's also entirely possible that he's programming us for his own A24 cult. I'm not really sure. That was my joke. (laughs) stole it from me. I'm sorry. Actually, that is a good... uh, I'd like to... I think... I guess this is skipping to the end, but when do we ever treat a film chronologically? Never. The ending. Uh, It is, like, intentionally so very cathartic, but also very ambiguous. And actually, like, in a way that's similar to hereditary. Inevitable. Uh, But (laughs) I want to get into that later. And I find it very interesting the reaction to this movie because obviously like tweets or other social media stuff like Instagram posts or memes aren't like, like it is not necessarily indicative of their whole thoughts on a movie or their like more complex thoughts on a movie. But like the reaction has been like a lot of embracing that catharsis wholeheartedly and saying, man, this is basically a happy ending. Like this is positive. Like a lot of good for her. Like, yeah, burn your shitty boyfriend. And now that that's wrong, but like discussions we've had before this podcast. Mm -hmm. This is where I think, yeah, yeah, we talked about this a little bit off mic, but I think sometimes, especially with challenging films or even long films where you can kind of lose track of what happened at the beginning to the end, I think a second viewing is good because for me, the first time that we saw this, I definitely was kind of on board with that because I, the first thing that came to my mind was the ending of The Witch, which I will forever go to bat as that is a happy ending. But the circumstances of those two endings are so different. And for me, again, this is something we talked about a little bit off mic, but the cult programming that happens throughout this movie is so subtle that I think it kind of worked on us as an audience a little bit. And it kind of took me seeing some less favorable reviews of the ending to kind of understand that point. And it shocked me because when I first started seeing these like, hey guys, this is not a happy or cathartic ending really, I was a little, I was like offended a little bit. I was like, how could you say that? (laughs) What do you mean? She burned her shitty boyfriend. He sucks. But when I really sat and I thought about it, um, I do think that you can find catharsis and I think that you can find a certain level of happiness in this ending when you look at it from the stance of personal empowerment rather than a real and true feminist empowerment. Because, again, the cult programming is present throughout the movie. The first thing that happens, they show up, they do drugs together. They go, they take a nap, they eat some food, and then they go through this horribly traumatic event in which they see two old people jump from a cliff and kill themselves. And that is classic trauma bonding. It's a thing that emotional abusers do. It's a thing that cults do to kind of lure you in. They shock you to the point where you kind of have to They shock you and then they act like everything's fine so that you are caught off guard and you start to doubt your own feelings. And so in a way, the cult is gaslighting Danny in the exact same way that Christian is, just on a much larger scale. And when you look at the fact that they kind of sever all of their ties to the outside world and all of their ties to each other very slowly and very subtly in a way that pits them against each other. 
And I'm not sure. I think that we talked about it a little bit where it's maybe that they weren't sure who was going to be a sacrifice in the end or who was going to stay kind of thing. But they make sure that the two academics feel that they have to stay academically interested. They give them the permission to do their thesis either because they know they're never going to live to make the thesis or that they're going to stay and not want to talk about it to the outside world. They know specifically that Danny has gone through this terrible traumatic experience and that she is ripe to be picked up by this kind of group that wants to show you that they're there for you so that you are you know indebted to them and that you feel like you have to stay with them and so I think that Danny feels that her ending is happy I feel like she feels like she's gotten everything she's wanted like that she's ever wanted she is loved she is cared for she is held as Pele says so again like when we talk about empowerment I do think it's really important to remember that there's a difference between personal empowerment and like real empowerment like I said so for Danny she feels this empowerment she feels emboldened she feels loved and accepted but all of those feelings have been manipulated from the second she agreed to go to Sweden she's been on drugs for most of the trip and you can't really make informed decisions when you're on drugs especially like um hallucinatory drugs Not that I would know anything about that, but her path to acceptance and to finding a community is literally littered with the bodies of black and brown people. So there's definitely no feminist empowerment in accepting complicity in that. There's no empowerment in being a part of a group that just goes through the motions and acts out a theater of what you're feeling. And I do feel, I feel gray about the scene where they act out her feelings with her because I do think that you need that. Sometimes you need somebody to just say, I see you, I see what you're going through. But when they're using it as this tool to sever her ties and to draw her in, I can't see that as, you know, the same powerful, like, group of female acceptance that other people are seeing it as especially when they're manipulating her from you know she essentially saw the rape of her boyfriend and they use this to skillfully trick her into thinking that you know he's doing this on purpose it's like he's definitely not drugged and seduced and yada yada and there's also at the end of the day there's no empowerment or catharsis to be found in abandoning your own identity just so that you don't have to feel alone anymore And I think that you can feel a sense of catharsis in the ending, but I also think it's so sad that that is what it comes to for her, that she has to completely give up her sense of self and destroy everything that she has left just to stay with these people who, yes, will be good to her, but at the end of the day, they're a murder cult. So is that really the people you want to be with? (laughs) I don't know. And. That's where, like, it does feel very intentional that it is, like, that he's going for exactly that. So in that sense, he nails it. That we have been programmed. Right. (laughs) He's programming, and he's he's programming the audience, too. Like, he's, I tried to say this before, and I forgot how you more skillfully put it, but it's like, it goes beyond him daring you to agree with the cult. It's almost like he dares you to not agree with the cult. And to not be on their side. Uh, Despite, it, he does that very skillfully like it seems like everyone in her life sucks and she lost her family that she cares about but 
one thing I picked up on in rewatching the movie is we never see the face of anyone except for those four dudes and Danny in the beginning. Her friend who she talks to on the phone who gives good advice and seems to be like a good friend and present for her. We don't see her. They're at a house party where they know people. We don't even see the guy who's like, I think we see him out of focus in a wider shot, but like, mm-hmm. that's it. And so we don't see any other people. So like the movie also by using movie magic also tricks you into thinking all she has left are like her terrible boyfriend and his shitty friends. Yeah. His, yeah. his shitty friends like to and varying this is, degrees. And this is, this is what emotional abusers do. They isolate you and they make you feel like you're crazy and you're unlovable and no one will ever want you. And so you might as well just stay right here where maybe it's not great, but it's comfortable and you're not alone. Right. She's still being gaslit. It's just that like the cult is like a warm hug kind of gaslighting, whereas it was a cold shoulder with the other guy. Uh, In my Letterboxd review, I wrote that she trades one manipulator for a family of manipulators. Right. Who are just like much better at manipulating. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, have a whole structure built upon it. Yeah. And I don't know. It's It it makes me sad because what Danny needed was to go home, go back to school, maybe take a Xanax. Like, <laughs> this would have been better for everyone if she had just – if this had never happened and she and her boyfriend inevitably just break up. Mm-hmm. That is, like, better for everyone involved. Uh, depending on the circumstances, maybe the shitty dudes don't get better. But, like – possibly if depending on how the breakup goes and what causes it and like yeah danny would then also be free of it but not be trapped in a cult and she's that's the thing too is she's such an interesting character and to me i feel i feel really connected to her because again i've dated dudes who are so casually shitty like that and and an interesting thing to me is that he's also casually shitty to his friends like he's on top of being a shitty boyfriend he's not even a good friend and I think that somebody like Danny, who is clearly using everyone around her to define herself, she has no sense of self. She's alone. She's just like the perfect prey for this guy who's not really trying to be a shitty guy. He just kind of is. Like the way I put it is like he's just like a sentient patch of haze wearing a human suit who knows like what you are supposed to do in any given circumstance, but like does not seem to have any moral compass or internal self or even like just any rules or connection, real connections of any kind. Because yeah, like you said, like he's not trying to be manipulative, but he's one of those people that just is like he totally sell like besides being a terrible boyfriend, but doing the things you're supposed to do, which only make him a worse, really, by doing the thing half-heartedly doing the things he's not supposed that he is supposed to do, like touching her back or inviting her th- them her to go to Sweden with them. He sells his friends out as soon as it's convenient to like keep himself out of trouble. And yeah, honestly, it feels like almost the most inelegant part of the movie, but it's very clarifying when he says about Josh. I hope you don't even consider us friends with him. <laughs> It's so, so crazy. And that's the thing, too, is like it's also a brilliant piece of uh, of screenwriting in that the first time we watched it, I have to admit, I didn't really know what to make of the sex or the rape scene or whatever you want to call it. Because it's really easy to fall into that trap of like, this dude sucks 
and this is hilarious that this is happening to him. But at the end of the day, like, he's a shitty person, but he doesn't deserve to be, like, drugged and forced to impregnate some girl and then burned alive in a bear suit. Like, I... He just deserves to be dumped. (laughs) Yeah, he just deserves to be dumped. Exactly. And it's so... It's so crazy how in... Again, in what I consider to be not a lot of character setup, it becomes super easy to be pitted against these characters in the way that the cult pits them against each other. And because again, like, yes, they're annoying and hostile to Danny. They kind of bully her into doing drugs before she's ready. Um, her boyfriend is lame, you know, like none of these are punishable by death actions. And yet every time one of them is picked off, you kind of feel this like, yeah, good. Like, get rid of that guy. Except for, like, with the the very – the exception of William Jackson Harper, who is being shitty but in, like, a total, like, culturally insensitive way. And let us not forget Simon and Connie, who, as far as we know, are perfectly decent people who oh. got suckered in. Well, and another thing that people keep talking about is that um, the movie is racist, which I, I don't – it's not for me to say, but I don't necessarily agree with that interpretation, specifically because I did read some interviews with Ari where he points out that, like, Sweden has a history of Nazi collaboration. Like, they are against – well, not, like, all of them, obviously, but, like, generally as a country, they're very white and very, like, not super pro-immigrant. There is a huge sex trafficking problem in Sweden that is kind of swept under the rug because, like, it's just Eastern European woman being trafficked in and it's not, like, the right kind of person to help. Even when when they're going to Harga, there is a, a banner that they pass under that translates basically to like keep immigrants out of housing ladder. Like it's very much set up to be like, yes, this is a creepy pagan cult and they're kind of white supremacists. So it doesn't surprise me that the people that they bring with intuition to keep are cute, small, blonde Danny and like redhead Christian who can help make other redheaded babies. Right. Like, th- And the people that they bring clearly to sacrifice yeah. are the three non-white characters in the film. And that's where, I guess, like, if you do read the movie as being purely catharsis and it is supposed to be a happy ending, like, I guess you can see that. But I felt like the the white supremacy idea, even before you talked to me about, like, the script and what didn't quite make it into the movie, into, like, the final cut, mm-hmm. it still seems pretty intentional. It is a creepy white cult that drugs and murders and rapes people yeah and i think that sometimes people are just really quick to in the absence of a certain demographic assume that it must be racist or assume that it must be misogynistic and i think they've talked about this on faculty of horror a couple times where it's like every movie that is an all-male cast for example would not actually be improved by adding women like adding women to the thing doesn't make it a better movie or change anything about the movie. And in fact, probably makes it a worse movie where you get in these added shitty jokes or gross scenes between the one female character and the women. So like, I think it's important to remember that sometimes these things are a statement and they're part of the script and a part of a message that the art is trying to convey. Like the country is overwhelmingly white. The cult is all white. And the point is that they're shitty people who are doing shitty things and sacrificing people of color to their own fucked up pagan gods for crop produce, whatever. Like, it's nuts. That's the thing that surprises me is that, yes, I, I can totally see. And I think that I I feel 
as fucked up as this sounds, I felt refreshed by the end of watching this the second time because I felt like I understood the movie a lot more clearly. I felt like I was able to follow the arcs better and I felt like I understood the messages of the movie better. And at the same time, yeah, it feels great to watch Danny burn her shitty boyfriend alive. I'm not going to lie. It's awesome. But like... I don't know. It's just so easy to get caught up in that feeling and forget all of the other terrible things that bring you to that moment that you kind of are desensitized into sweeping under the rug. And in a way that kind of ties into like, I don't know that this was direct or intentional because this is a few levels removed at this point, but like the, uh, the, the insidiousness and the ulterior motives of, you know, empowering her kind of parallel how that's a very real thing in the world where corporations do this all the time in a much like more financial. Obviously, less murder fashion. It's yeah. the fake empowerment. I mean, take women. a look at it. Let's. It's a July twenty fifth today. I guarantee you, if you went to any company page, they have already removed and scrubbed all of their Pride Month campaigns and avatars and stuff. It's yeah, yeah I one hundred percent agree with that. And yeah, I don't know. And that's like one thing I do wish that the movie went in a little bit more on because. Again, uh, we can sit here and conjecture all day about, like, the subtext that we're, for all intents and purposes, imagining. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, Ari just wrote this movie and that's what it is. It's a breakup movie and he wants you to kind of laugh and kind of feel uncomfortable, yada, yada. Right. But at the end of the day, like, I, I think that it could have benefited from taking some of its – I don't mind this, but it is kind of insane that this movie is two and a half hours long. Some of that runtime could have been devoted to making this textual instead of subtextual because I think it's really clear to me reading the screenplay and seeing what was excised from the film. Like there are a couple of scenes that make Danny kind of less of a passive lump in her own degradation. Like she gets a little bit of teeth. She fights back. Her and Christian have a fight where she clearly tells him, I'm a psychologist and you are putting me in the devaluation phase and you don't even love me anymore. And I can clearly see this. Whereas like in the finished film, I don't think I ever get the feeling that she really understands that that's what's happening. And I don't know. I just think that when the studio came to him and was like, you can't have a three and a half or four hour long movie about a cult that's also about a breakup. I think that he got stuck in having spent so much time creating this world, creating this culture, building literally from scratch this village that when it came down to choosing the relationships and the people and more cool cult shit, he obviously chose cool cult shit because so much time went into creating that that stuff and i get it i do and you are going to lose something no matter what when you cut an hour from a movie yes. it's just really sucks the stuff that we like choices uh, were made yeah. <laughs> is what it comes down to and i really like this movie and i do mm -hmm. think that if you sit and you watch it critically once or more than once you can pick up on these things and you can still have a really fulfilling experience watching it but I would have liked a little bit more of that because I think that Danny is a really interesting and sympathetic character. And I think that the things that didn't make it from the screenplay about her would have made her feel more rounded out and honestly would have made the ending a little bit more clear to me that it is like, um, I think the exact quote from the screenplay is something, okay, not the paraphrased quote from the screenplay is she smiles. She is not alone. It is the insane happiness it's like the happiness of somebody who has totally lost it it's tragic and beautiful and that's how i feel about it it's so sad but at the same time so beautiful and weirdly satisfying i think that kind of ties into what you were saying about that death of the author thing though 
do you mind me getting into some of this other stuff from this interview? Yeah, go for so, it. So, like, I want to get into this other stuff from the interview because, mm-hmm. the like, on the one hand, it's, su- like, it supports our reading of the movie. So, like, mm-hmm. that's nice. But also... I, I'm kind of tentative when it comes to listening to inner like too much to interviews or behind the scenes stuff just because I we do like I feel I feel it's okay to use we but we kind of buy into mm-hmm. death of the author thing where like the exterior motivations and intentions are important but also I like having a separate read on something I I find value in that a lot of the time. Uh, but there was some really interesting stuff in this uh, interview, especially since we're kind of talking in the scope of his career and the relation to the, his, the rest of his work that I kind of, that I think are worth bringing up. And this is mostly, again, from the Film Comment podcast. So some of the ways he described the movie is he doesn't consider this a horror movie. I will, like, not in the way that we mock necessarily, (laughs) uh, because he does say, like, straight up, he's like, Hereditary was a horror movie. I do not consider this a horror movie, but if it is, it's a horror film about codependency, Mm -hmm. which, and he's also said that he considers this movie a fairy tale. And basically, in that sense, it is like a folk horror movie, according to the perspective of everyone else in this movie, except for Danny and the cult. But for Danny, it's almost like this fairy tale manifestation of her own will. Uh, like almost like what her fantasy of finally like separating from this guy would be. Um, and I thought that, that tied into like our read of the film. And I thought that was just very interesting too. I like that a um, lot. Well, I think he also described it in another interview as fucked up wizard of Oz. And it kind of is, you just kind of end up at the end of the yellow brick road and mm-hmm. she just doesn't click her heels to go home. She just stays in the murder cult. And some other, this is almost like our old IMDb trivia section. I'm like, oh, I found this interesting. Like, he specifically uh, looked into pagan communities that he found interesting and did not found beautiful, like, found some beauty or interest in and not just the stuff that's easy to dismiss, which, I mean, if you're going for the ambiguous ending, makes sense. This was filmed basically on top of the Hereditary release. And so he literally, like, one day was at the Hereditary release and the next day was on this movie filming, uh, which. I don't know. It almost makes it more impressive. No, for me. Well, for me, these are definitely two movies that are companion pieces to each other, Mm -hmm. because I think that Hereditary really focuses on the trauma of grief and inevitable inherited familial issues, whereas this is very much you can go out on your own and try to fix these issues and still stumble into something terrible. I think my thesis on them together was that Hereditary was Ari showing us how much he, how stressed he could make you when you had no idea what was going to happen and midsummer was an exercise in how stressed he could make you even though the entire path was clear the whole time it's like again another off my conversation but like the they both have inevitability but they are just they're different forms like the in the in hereditary uh the inevitability is almost like well, how she I was she it? was set up this way from birth. It was always right. going to happen, and the audience had no idea what was going to happen. Whereas, you know, in Midsummer, we kind of know what's going to happen the whole time, and so like the inevitability is almost for the audience and like less so the characters there. Um, the last point I'll take from this film comment podcast is actually the very first part of the interview. The interviewer's first question is, "I I think this may be a happy ending." And Ari just kind of like it took him a minute, to, a bit to answer it, and uh, his follow up, uh, part of his follow up was, it's designed to be cathartic. It's designed to feel like a happy ending, mm-hmm. but also 
it's a murder call. Yeah. <laughs> and so then from the very beginning of that, like I found that's why I found that's part of why I found that interview so interesting and also took some satisfaction because it's and that's where like death of the author kind of cut for me personally, Mike, my reading of it comes in where like, even if a lot of like as much, even if everything we're kind of giving him po- credit for or possible credit for wasn't intentional, I still think like our reading of the movie could be valid because we kind of yeah. talked about that with sleepaway camp. But it is kind of nice to get that validation of like, oh, this was intentional. Like he did think this deeply about it. <laughs> I like it. to be quote unquote right. Yeah. And it also like, it's just like, it's nice to be right. But it, like, and it's nice to like, oh yes, this validates my positive feelings mm-hmm. towards the movie. But it's also nice in like the long-term career arc perspective. Cause it's like, ah, he is this thoughtful and intentional. Yeah. And it makes me more excited for like his next movies, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. And I mean, like, we've talked about this before, I think, a bunch in the podcast, but for better or for worse, once the art is in the world, its interpretation is no longer owned by you. Mm. And so I always think it's really fascinating when the author has a completely at odds interpretation. So I'm very satisfied that I can also be a smart film bro. (laughs) But like, to your point of how like, you feel like there could have been just a little bit more textual in there, especially considering I had just praised how good he is at like, small but significant textual elements like you do also have to consider how your film like be considered once it's out in the world like you, the author themselves has to consider death of the author and like no matter what you intend like sure people might take it the wrong mm-hmm. way but at a certain point you have to count for that yeah but. and i think so the one i think it would be remiss not to bring this up at all i think the one extreme misstep in this film is the incest baby oracle it's incredibly ableist i cannot think of a single reason why that had to be there or why this person had to be depicted in this way and it is the number one criticism that i've seen that i feel is extremely valid and i think that that's maybe the last holdover of shock value ari and i'm hoping that in the future that that kind of stuff is excised or at least dealt with in a way that makes more sense because you could cut the entire Reuben thing from the movie and miss nothing. That's, I think, and that's what makes it worse is it's not only like we felt like you feel like this could have been handled differently. He contributes it's, it's un- nothing. It's pretty unnecessary. Yeah. Like the only way it comes in is he writes the book that that causes William Jackson Harper, or John, why am I using Josh? That causes Josh to finally, like, cross a line that he would inevitably inevitably would have crossed anyways. But, like, yeah, it's kind of necessary. And you can even still kind of have that character, but maybe kind of weird now that you have two movies in a row where you, like, have this insidious character with a messed up face. Yeah. Uh, It just – it. It doesn't need to be there, and I'm sure that no one who is involved with this film process will ever listen to this podcast. But if you do, I think it it does – Bear noting that, like, when you're making a film and when you're putting it out in the world, you do need to be responsible about how you're portraying things. And I think that, to a point, he's been in his feature films smart about this, but there is still that kind of holdover from whatever the hell is going on in those short films. It's like something from a trashier movie. Yeah, it just it just doesn't need to be there. It very much feels like maybe it's an homage to a weird cult like weird cult movies from the 70s or 80s but it just or maybe even like a real life example like a, like one of the culty research maybe that's oh, like a real and I, thing I'm sure it is but but 
if it adds nothing and there's no commentary made on it and you can't even infer a single thing from it other than, dude, that kind of sucks. <laughs> I don't think it needs to be there. And I just – I didn't want to go through the whole podcast without mentioning it at least once because I I feel like – for me, horror is a place that you should be able to come to kind of find catharsis from your trauma and to kind of understand your own feelings about terrible things that happen in the world. And for an entire community of disabled people, which is a community that any of us could become a part of at any time with one accident or one illness or whatever, it feels really terrible to me that like over and over again, disabled people come to this subgenre that's meant to be about like freedom and understanding and whatnot and are met with the same kind of shitty ableism that's present everywhere else. And I would like to see that not happen. Just literally anything. Or like anything other than here's Ruben, he's ugly and he does the runes. Or like, you know? spend, like again, like when it comes to textual stuff, like Ruben is a victim of that cult. Yes. M- even more so than anybody else in that cult. Yeah. Uh yeah. Hundred percent. So I just I felt like it needed to be brought up. For sure. And yeah, I don't know. So I mean, one thing that's also going to stick with this podcast through its different seasons and iterations is, you know, criticizing even the things you love. I think we brought that up. I I recently listened to our earlier episodes to kind of remind myself about the podcast and how I talk about movies and whatnot. And it's literally in the first episode. I think I said verbatim, what people forget is you can love things and also be critical of them. And that's been, I think, the thesis of our entire podcast. So back at it, baby. Welcome to Let the Right Films In, where we will be critical of things that we love. Yeah. So I think that we are kind of wrapping up on this. Do you have any final thoughts on Midsummer? I, I think we honestly covered most of my big points. I hit all of my bullet points, so... I just... I guess... I mean, I guess we haven't mentioned that much, The how much, when it comes to, like, the technical craft. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, but that's just kind of a given. Gorgeous. Uh, yeah. So. And the the construction of the village is incredible. Um, and he once again got, like, one of the creepiest noise artists to do the soundtrack, and it works really well. Oh, yeah. The Hacks and Cloak. So good. Go see this movie. Uh, we really <laughs> liked it. It's probably going to be out of theaters really soon as we hit peak blockbuster Disney remake season. And it has been out for about a month. Yeah. Now. So I would... If if it's still in theaters around you and you've been on the fence, I would definitely check it out. I think that going in with a critical mind, you'll feel good about it in the end. It's a it's a great movie, and I'm really excited to see where Ari's career goes from here. Interesting. It's made twenty eight million dollars at the box office. Yay! Twenty three million domestic, um, which is less than Hereditary, but kind of makes an, sense. Uh, yeah, it's an A twenty four movie, so all of those budgets are lower i think than we think they and are and also so. like her like midsummer just does not have the same kind of appeal that hereditary was a surprise hit too so it's like a thriller whereas this is a long weird slow burn sometimes well very realistic depictions of psychedelic oh. drugs in this movie boys so if you uh if you have any weird feelings about that or if you've done them and they make you feel weird I would put a big warning on that because there are definitely some scenes where I was like, I do not like that. And I don't feel good about how I feel feeling the things watching this. So fair warning to all. (laughs) Again, not that any of us have ever done any of that, but fair warning. 
<laughs> we would never break laws. Um, so I think we're going to skip the recommended movie section on this episode because we literally started the podcast by recommending to you seven movies you could watch over the summer. And we'll have that letterbox list with more. Yeah. So if you want to see that, uh, you can – I'm going to assume Tyler is going to do it. So One of us will. Yeah. You can follow Tyler on Letterboxd at Tyler Tells Tales to uh, see that list um, for general podcastiness. You can email us at ltrfipod at gmail.com. That will be Let's where you – Let's see if she remembers the socials. I do. I do. You can, uh, you can send us long-form – love mail there you can rate review and subscribe us on itunes you can find us on all of your podcatcher apps i am not currently on twitter but tyler is doing socials for the podcast so you can follow us at ltrfipod at twitter.com and we also have an instagram that i think we're going to use more i've used it every day yeah we're teasing 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 uh that is also ltrfipod um, you can follow me on Instagram at Personal Maps. I'm also on Twitter at Personal Maps, but I don't know when I will be using that again. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Hannon. And yeah. Um, uh, we'll have a Patreon up. Oh, yeah. We are in the process of creating a Patreon. Um, we're still workshopping what the reward tiers are going to be. We know what the $100 one is. Yeah, that's $100 a month, by the way. Recurring donations. Heck yeah. So, um, if you so want to set that up, too. We'll yeah, do a poll. If, you if we wanna, hit $100 a month, we'll do a poll for what I have to do. Uh, we are setting this up just to help cover movie rental costs and whatnot. And yeah, so if you feel like you want to give us a dollar or two a month, please feel free to do that. We greatly appreciate it. And we are really excited to be back on the podcasting horse. So, we'll be back next month with an episode. <laughs> and then uh, we will. And then we'll be back the next month with an episode. Yeah, so a crazy thing about my life is I'm actually going to be gone for most of September and October. But we will, again, like we teased earlier in the episode, be at Salem Horror Fest for the second year in a row. Uh, Really excited to see some of the things that are happening there. Really excited to see our number one faves faculty of horror again. And uh, yeah, so God, what is our ending tagline now that we've been gone for so long? I feel like it's still relevant for it to be A24 is a great oh, movie God. studio and always will be since, uh, I mean, we're talking about Midsummer. But also, Kayla, I, I don't know that that's in the spirit of the podcast because the main theme of the podcast is criticizing the things you love. Mm-hmm. So should the outro really be the old 100% critical thing or this A24 100% positive thing? I don't know. I think we'll have to workshop that for next yeah. time. So until next time, please remember, Let the Right Films In is a great podcast and always will be. Yeah. Boats are cool. Boats are cool? (laughs) What? Is that our theme? That's the theme music. That's what it sounds like. You gotta get really close to the mic so that it sounds like I'm in a cult. You're just trying to make it look like I think that Coolsville sucks. I'm sorry, I just let the silence. Tyler, do you want to talk about the movie? Tyler. I don't know why I did that. Tyler, oh God, he's got his AirPods in. He can't hear me at all.
I don't own AirPods. I know, just I'm an Android user, okay? So, like, whatever. It's a meme, uh, Tyler. Oh, I don't... AirPods. Memes? We just established I'm an old, old man. Man, I don't know what these memes are. Oh, my God. These memes. All right, memes. all right. All right. Memes. Cut it. Cut it all. Cut it out. Uh, start over? Start over. Okay. This is already great blooper material. We're doing a really Jesus. good job. Okay. I mean, it's our finest work, the bloopers. The unusable stuff. <laughs>